Assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. I hope all of you out there enjoy Honey, because in this episode, we are going to be talking about honeypots. Although, unfortunately, it's not ex- they're not exactly consumable in the context that we're going to be talking about them in, because we're, of course, talking about honeypots in the cybersecurity context, and what they are, why they're used, how they're used, and... Maybe even the ultimate question of should you set one up? Um, And in case you're wondering, uh, I do not have one set up. Um, As you'll get, as we'll we'll get into, um, you may or may not actually want to do this. um, But yeah, but we'll get into that later on in the episode. But first, let's start off with this week's trivia question. The application known as Snort is an example of what kind of application? So what kind of application is Snort? And that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. Now, last week, we I, I gave a brief kind of overview of what I had known up to that point about the Vision Pro, since if you'll recall, the Vision Pro came out on the Friday, the episode went live on the Saturday, but I recorded on the Thursday. So I was a little, uh, I was kind of stuck in the past, if you will, but there were some, uh, I guess, reviewers out there that their embargo finally lifted and they were able to publish a review Uh, before the actual release date. So I was able to get kind of a little bit of information, but there's been a lot more reviews and feedback that people have had um, over the past week. Um, So I kind of wanted to address that a little bit as kind of a follow-up, just just real briefly though. But it seems the consensus is, which I think is kind of unsurprising to us normal folks, is it's really, really cool but not necessarily worth uh, $3,500. And I think a lot of us are probably not surprised by that consensus. Um, But the issue was what, at least one of the issues, at least from what I've gathered from some of the reviews I've seen, is there seems to be a lack of apps at the moment. And when I say lack of apps, Specifically, what I mean is apps designed for Vision Pro. Since there are tons of apps out there that you can download that are iPad native apps that essentially got ported to Vision Pro, but in reality, they're just iPad apps that can just run on the Vision Pro. Um, I think it's you could maybe kind of correlate this to like back when the iPad first came out, like it had access to all the iPhone apps, but it was just like that two times zoom um, icon at the bottom of the screen that would make the app just two times bigger and just zoom it. Um, so yeah, there is technically apps for it, but they weren't like iPad specific. So I think that's kind of sort of what we're seeing with the the Vision Pro right now, um, getting iPad apps. But in but in some cases, like with uh, Netflix and Spotify, for instance, uh, they don't even offer. An, an, an app at all and the way that they're doing this is they're specifically opting out of allowing their iPad app to be on Vision Pro so it's not like they had to do a separate build to allow their iPad app to be on Vision Pro they actually had to go in and like manually specify that they didn't want it on there so which is kind of interesting um, but that's one of the issues and YouTube is also an issue that people have been complaining about although I did hear I think that YouTube is planning on creating a specific Vision Pro app. I guess they they heard enough backlash from people on YouTube about it, so they decided to to do something about it. Um, but that seems like one of the big issues. I guess another potential issue is the is the weight issue, um, especially if you're wearing the the more fashionable, um, the solo, I think it's solo knit band, I think is what they're calling it. The single strap one that they show in all their marketing material, not the, 
the dual loop band or whatever it is, the one that goes over your head um, that you don't really see as much uh, because probably because it doesn't look as good. Uh, but that is some of the complaints that I've heard is about after like the 20 to 30 minute mark, uh, people are saying they're starting to feel it. Um, so I, I guess that's that comes with the territory of it being heavy and how the strap is designed with not really putting a lot of weight, the weight on your head, which I guess is kind of the benefit of the dual loop band that does put some of the weight on your head. Uh, but anyway, it seems like the pretty much the main takeaway that at least every review that I've seen has come away with is if you live near an Apple store, set up an appointment to try it out, but they don't think it's worth you spending $3,500 for it. That's basically kind of the consensus um, that I've, I've seen about it. So just kind of wanted to give that bit of an update. Some of you have probably already, already knew all that stuff, but others might not have. And if you were one of those people that didn't know, well, now you know. Uh, and with that, let's get into this week's cybersecurity tip. This week's cybersecurity tip is another probably no-brainer for some, but it can also kind of be overlooked in others, specifically, I think, in like home lab situations. Um, and that is that you want to make sure that your lab or your development environment is either A, totally offline, or B, inaccessible from your production environment. And this also kind of more so um, is concerned with like companies and enterprises that have like specific environments that they build and test code in and kind of do like internal testing. Um, and they'll have like servers or VMs or whatever specifically dedicated to testing out their new changes. Um, and then they'll have a specific environment for their production um, where they run all their whatever production servers that they're running, whether that's web apps or game servers or whatever the case may be. Um, but in home lab situations, you <laughs> probably don't have access to quite as much resources as they do in the enterprise. So things kind of tend to get jumbled together. Um, now, I know specifically for me, I don't necessarily run... Uh, it's not like I'm developing beta software that I'm running live in a production environment that I'm hosting or anything like that. Um, pretty much the only beta testing of software I do is I'll just test to see if it, like, you know, say I'll develop on on a Mac, on my Mac or something, and then I'll push it up to one of my Linux servers to do a build on there and then test to see if it runs and just do some basic testing and that's it. Um, or same thing for Windows as well. Um, but it's not like I'm, you know, running a, you know, some kind of server or application, you know, 24-7 in a dev environment just to, like, test things out or anything like that. Um, most of what I consider to be my production, in quotes, if you will, is things like my pie holes, my VPN, my, my router, um, GitLab server, you know, things like that that I pretty much rely on for home automation, not necessarily home automation, but like home networking, um, development, that kind of a thing. Um, I don't necessarily have like a specific uh, dev production environment for code that I've written per se, although I guess I can't say that because I technically do. <laughs> um, and that's, uh, I have a couple Docker containers that I run that I did write myself, one of them being that um, Universal Countdown um, Docker container server that I wrote. That's running um, in my home lab. Um, and then I got the uh, the Xserve RAID admin Docker container that I created, which is also running in my home lab, um, as, as well as another Docker container, which has just been recently added, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but aside from that, which... I don't know if I, I mean, I guess it's technically quote unquote production, uh, but 
it, it's also not because it's not like I'm hosting it to the world. It's only accessible on my internal network. Um, but when it comes to uh, you know, segmentate, segmenting your development and production environment, the main reason why you want to do this and potentially even not have your development environment accessible to the internet is because we've talked about this before, but development code is not production code for a reason. Generally speaking, it's tends to be fairly buggy and buggy code tends to have things like crashes or vulnerabilities or things of that nature that you don't necessarily want to have exposed to the broader internet or exposed to your production environment because if someone were to gain unauthorized access to your development environment due to, say, a vulnerability in the code, they can't then pivot to your production environment and take the whole thing down or launch a ransomware attack or insert any other number of cyber attack. So that's kind of the main reason why you don't want your development environment connected to your production environment. Um, and it's also generally a good idea to, if you're, if you do have it accessible to the internet for reasons like, you know, downloading updates or whatnot, um, you also want to probably make sure that it's segmented from the rest of your network and kind of put it off on its own, its own segment. Um, so in the event that someone does get into it and takes it over through some kind of vulnerability or exploit, they can't then do any, some kind of lateral movement and take the rest of your network down. So yeah, that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. So I kind of teased in last week's episode that I had some big plans for a CI/CD pipeline. Um, so why don't we go ahead and talk about that in what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week? So I I'm not gonna say that I am a DevOps expert right now because I created, uh, I think, my second official CI/CD pipeline, but uh, I'm kind of a DevOps expert right now. Of course, I'm kidding. Um, I, I'm still very much a noob when it comes to that because um, one thing that you don't see is how many commits and retries it took to get the CI/CD pipeline actually to work. Um, but it's working now, and that's what matters. So I, I te- like I said, I teased last week about setting one of these up. And what I have it doing currently, I plan on expanding it in the future, is one thing that I've kind of wanted to do for a while, aside from getting more experience with CI/CD pipelines, or if you're unfamiliar, that's continuous integration, continuous deployment. Uh, Basically, this idea that you push your code to your Git server, and then once you do that push, that'll kick off a series of tasks that'll do things like build your code, test your code, audit your code, and then deploy your code to either a development environment, production environment. You can really kind of go crazy with this but basically the main goal is rather than you having to commit your code um, and then someone building the code running tests on the code and then deploying it to the environment you want it to all that happens automatically once you commit your changes so and push those changes to the the git server which if you've never used a CI/CD pipeline, let me tell you, it is absolutely incredible and almost like magic in a sense, but also not really like magic because it's literally just following a script. But it's magic in the sense that you literally just type git push and then next thing you know, your code is deployed uh, and running and performing like it's supposed to. Assuming, of course, that you didn't put any uh, bugs in the code and it it actually works, Uh, which theoretically, I mean, you should be testing that beforehand um, to make sure it actually works since 
it's, I would say, best practice um, to not commit code that doesn't work. Um, now, you might get the, oh, it works on my machine. Um, but aside from that, you should definitely be testing to make sure your code works before you commit the changes. Um, and ideally, you would test it on multiple different environments, at least the environments environments you're planning on supporting uh, if you're using a compiled language. Now, if you're using something like Python or Java um, or, or HTML or something web-related that doesn't necessarily um, differ depending on what operating system it runs on because of how how abstracted it is from the hardware... Generally, you don't really have to worry as much about that, uh, but it's still something that it's best practice to test just to make sure. Um, since even languages like Python, you can sometimes run into issues uh, where you can't, where certain things or certain packages don't work on Windows or Linux, or you have to use a different one that's called something different. So there are some minor differences depending on what you're doing. Um, but getting back on track here. Uh, the CI/CD pipeline that I set up has to do with documentation, which I know is very boring, but one thing that I've wanted to do for a while now is I have tons of documentation written in the video game I'm writing, and Xcode claims to have what well, actually it does. I'm just giving it a hard time right now. Um, it has the ability to build documentation for you, but it doesn't seem to like to work with C++ and Doxygen style documentation. Now, if you're writing Swift code, it works flawlessly and works beautifully because I've, I've done that. Uh, but if you're working with like C++ and Doxygen code, it tends to error out and not work. Um, so one thing that I've wanted to do is have documentation built. Um, if you've never, like for instance, if you use Java before and you've used a, a Java IDE like Eclipse, for instance, Eclipse has a way that you can automatically build and generate Java doc documentation, which is essentially pre-built documentation that has you know all the information about all your functions your classes your methods your variables all that good stuff assuming of course that you wrote java doc documentation uh, but c plus plus and c have a similar thing with doxygen um, there's a program or application or I'm not exactly sure entirely what it's called, but Doxygen is the name, and it essentially gives you Java doc style documentation for programming languages like C and C++. And there's a specific way that you kind of have to write the documentation, but I've been kind of sort of following that for the documentation, um, and I wanted a way to actually get built documentation. And rather than having to install things on my computer, I just decided, why don't I do it all in a, in a Docker container through a CI-CD pipeline, so whenever I push my code, that can automatically go through, build the documentation, and deploy said documentation. So that's what I set out to do this week. And got it working. So basically what happens is as soon as I push my changes to my GitLab server, that will kick off a CI-CD pipeline that will create a Docker container that will build the Doxygen documentation and do two things. It will, one, build the documentation, and two, generate a PDF format from the LaTeX output that it, that gen it generates as part of the Doxygen output. So it takes the LaTeX output, generates a PDF, and then puts the HTML that it generates and the PDF into the artifacts that GitLab generates during the CI-CD pipeline. And then it goes to the second stage, which it actually builds a Docker container specifically to host the HTML uh, source code, if you will, uh, that Doxygen generated. Um, so it'll build that, put it into an Nginx container, which Nginx is just the, the web server being used. So it puts that all into a Docker container and adds that to my GitLab server's 
container registry. And then it goes on to the deploy stage, which it will log in. It will log. I added the credentials so it can log in to my uh, Docker con, Docker server um, that hosts all my Docker containers. And then I wrote a super simple Docker compose file that will essentially reach out to the container registry and then pull down the latest changes and make sure the container is up and running. So basically the deploy stage just logs into the Docker server, runs the Docker compose, and bada bing bada boom, I pushed my changes, and then within maybe a couple minutes or so, I have a new live Docker container running on my home network that I can access all of my documentation for my video game, and it is chef's kiss fantastic. And of course, I didn't stop there, although this is slightly different from the CICD pipeline. Um, I added a added an instance to my proxy server, so now I can just type like docs.videogame.local.net uh, or whatever I have set up, and it'll instantly take me to the appropriate site with port number, and I have access to all of my fancy documentation. And if I want to, I can even download the PDF from that site as well. So it is fantastic. Now... I do have plans in the future to update this CI/CD pipeline to also include the actual building of the executable and the game itself, but seeing for, of course, for Linux, macOS, and Windows operating systems, uh, but seeing that we are not even to like an alpha stage yet we are still trying to add features and build it up um there's not really a i mean i guess there you could argue there's a point to doing it but it, it wouldn't provide like any kind of tangible benefit at least at the moment at least i don't think so uh for initiating those at the moment it would essentially just add more work to my servers but with that said uh, because I actually set up the CICD pipeline that's actually for use rather than just a demo um, I'm actually putting my GitLab runner to good use now and it's getting used fairly regularly so you always love to see that love to uh, hear the fans of your server spinning up a little bit to let you know that it's actually doing some real work um, and with that, uh, we, I think that's a kind of a good transition into the actual program updates that I made to my video game. Uh, we'll try to keep this fairly brief. Um, it was mostly kind of like quick things that I was able to knock off. Um, one being EX, the EXP animating, so it actually will animate an update, uh, you know, when you earn it, which it wasn't doing before. Um, but I'd say probably the bigger update that I made was I actually transitioned it to be rather than just a specific one-on-one -on -one, uh, instance of the battles scene, it now does team versus team, um, which obviously if you've ever played Pokemon before, you know that's kind of a lot of what the game is, is team versus team battles. Um, so switching that over was... Honestly, a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I had a feeling that it was going to be a decent amount of work, but in reality, it really wasn't. Mainly because rather than... Well, I ended up rewriting the code anyway. Um, but rather than fully rewriting the code, because I switched back to what I had originally, was instead of having to change the variable names for the individual Pokemon battling, instead what I did was passed in the two teams, two parties that would be battling each other, and then just creating a pointer to whatever Pokemon was on the field for each side, and then that way I could essentially use the same variable throughout the rest of the code so I really didn't have to update anything, which definitely made my life a lot easier. Um, and then I also added um, some initial support for leveling up. Um, it's not fully integrated yet because it doesn't uh, do any kind of uh, move adding. So if you're supposed to learn a new move, it doesn't do anything like that. Uh, it doesn't 
prompt you if you already have four moves, if you want to forget one, doesn't do anything like that. So there's definitely still a lot of work that needs to be done, but it at least, you know, lets you know that you leveled up and kind of shows you the delta, um, basically how much increase you got in each stat category, and then your new total. Um, now, some of you might be thinking that this battle scene is starting to get kind of bloated <laughs> with all the stuff that's in it. And you're, you're, depending on how you look at it, you're right. And I say depending on how you look at it because I have seen some C++ files that are easily twice as big, if not bigger, <laughs> than my current battle scene but with that being said the battle scene is also like just over 1800 lines of code so you know and then if you add in the all the lines from the header file that's associated with the battle scene we're easily looking at over 2000 lines of code um, which if you're keeping track at home from last week's episode where I mentioned we hit a milestone of being over 10,000 lines that's kind of in the ballpark of like 20% of the code base now I I guess my excuse for that if I even need to excuse myself at all is if you've ever played Pokemon before you know that battling is like probably the majority of the game like it it kind of is a big part so it kind of makes sense that a lot of code has to go into it and if you're just looking at, at looking at it at the surface it probably doesn't necessarily seem like there's a whole lot, but once you actually get under the hood and realize all the things that have to go into it, uh, those lines of code add up pretty quickly, as you can see. But I dis but while it is kind of getting bloated, I am taking proactive measures now to mitigate that, specifically making the code more modular. And the goal here is in addition to doing a fair bit of refactoring this week to cut out some of the redundant code um, and some of the tech debt that I've kind of built up um, trying to blaze through implementing all these features, um, another thing I did was, and kind of my what I'm planning on doing going forward, is rather than creating these big bulky scenes with tons and tons of states in the state machine, is to divide it up into smaller pieces. So for instance, the leveling up system is basically just a couple of windows, assuming if you consider the text box, which already is included anyway, a window, there's that one and the dialogue associated with it and then the additional box for the, the stat increases. So what I'm doing is I'm basically creating that as its own quote unquote scene. So that scene will just be overlaid on top of the battle scene whenever it's needed. And if it's not needed, it just doesn't get displayed. And the reason why this is nice is because battling isn't the only instance where you'll have the chance to level up. And similarly, uh, leveling up isn't the only instance where you'll be able to learn new moves, so I'm going to plan on adding another scene, if you will, on top of that, and basically layer these, so rather than having a ton of you know essentially one use functions and states in a state machine i can basically pass all that um computation and processing if you will which there arguably really isn't that much but as far as manageability of the code it makes it a lot easier uh, rather than having one massive file at least in my opinion anyway um so I think it'll it'll plan on making the code a lot more manageable. But also, I am. It also gave me an idea for how to do the world generation. So I hadn't. I've been kind of dreading that portion, which I still haven't implemented yet. Really, um, I have a little demo that kind of shows the player walking around, and he can go into a house. But aside from that, that's basically it. Um, 
But one thing I was kind of dreading and not really sure about was how in the world was I going to generate the entire world and load different portions of the map or, or how I was. I had no idea how I was going to handle that. But this kind of gives me the idea of how to go about doing it. And I think what I'm, at least my current plan, which who knows, this may actually change when I, whenever I get around to implementing this, is essentially create a grid of sorts which the grid is essentially most likely going to be some kind of 2D array, um, which will essentially be an array of screens. And because all of my uh, various screens, like the battle scene, or scene, I guess, whatever, uh, the battle, the level up, uh, the move learning, um, all those are essentially screens. They inherit from the screen class, which is kind of the, the parent of everything. So if I create a, a array of those, I can essentially add all of the screens that I want into this grid and then essentially track the location of the player and then only display like the neighboring cells in the grid and only display those scenes. So you'll still have a decent amount of the world drawn, at least everything that you can see, but you're not, you know, displaying things that aren't even close to you or trying to calculate collisions for things that aren't even relevant to you. Um, so this will not only save on memory usage, uh, but also on processing power as well just reducing the overall things that the game has to keep track of uh, when the user's in the overworld. So I'm really kind of happy that I came up with this, and I'm kind of looking forward to being able to implement it whenever that time comes. Um, we're still, I think, a little ways off from that, um, since I'm still trying to hammer out a lot of stuff on this battle thing. I think, though, once I get the whole level up and and at least the basics of learning moves and potentially forgetting moves if you have more than four i think once i have that i think i'll probably be at least at a good enough good enough place uh to move on and try to do some other things obviously there's still a lot more to do uh with the battle scene there's basically no animations to speak of for the most part aside from things like the the hp bar and the exp bar moving um there's so like there's no intro scene of you sending your guy out or the opponent sending theirs out um there's no animations for the moves that you're using <laughs> um technically currently there's no sprites even for the pokemon that are on the field so there's still a lot to do not to mention the fact that status moves don't even exist yet i haven't even accounted for them so there's still a lot that needs to go into it uh, but i think once i can get that that level up stuff that'll at least be a good um stopping point i guess if you will a good at least a good uh, amount of work done on it that i can feel comfortable moving on to other things and i think the next thing i'll probably try to do is create refactor just refactor how i'm doing the that demo where i have the player walking around the world that's probably going to be the next thing i tackle and then once i tackle that then i'll probably try to move into integrating you know the character walking around the world entering a battle and then getting back out of the battle and walking around the world again and kind of creating that main game loop uh, if you will so those are my future goals we'll see how long it takes me to accomplish them um, but that was the nerdy things that I got up to this week and now let's get into talking about Winnie the Pooh's favorite cybersecurity principle the honeypot. So if you're not familiar with what honeypots are, I don't blame you since they're they're not like super, super common. They're not going to be that thing that makes the headline news like a ransomware attack or um, a phishing attack or identity theft or, or things like that. Buffer overflows. You know, they're not like the big headlining features that people talk about in cybersecurity, uh, but they are definitely an important component of cybersecurity, especially for cybersecurity researchers. So what honeypots are specifically are essentially ways to mimic behavior of real systems and services to essentially make them appear vulnerable 
with the purpose of trying to attract malicious activity to them. And <laughs> in uh, normal circumstances, you want to try to avoid attracting malicious activity towards you. But the, essentially the goal of the honeypot, though, is to study and analyze and essentially try to gain insights into tactics that threat actors are using in order to be able to better protect against them. So, you know, one way to, what what better way to understand how attackers are, are doing or trying to do things like lateral movement than luring them into your little sandbox so you can see what they do by logging all their movements. Um, so that's, you know, just one of the ways that uh, cybersecurity researchers use honeypots uh, in order to do research on various cybersecurity threats. Um, and another common use case, which is coming becoming a lot more prevalent these days, is this idea of honey bots, um, which essentially is creating a honeypot to try to appear as like an IoT device or something to get some kind of malicious actor to deploy some kind of botnet onto your device. And then you can track to see where the botnet is trying to phone home to to identify the control node. And then you can either report that node, go after the node, uh, try to take it down, depending on who you are, I guess, um, you, if you have the legal jurisdiction to do that. Um, but essentially just try to, to get, gain insight into what the botnet's doing, where it's phoning home to, that kind of a thing. Um, now, I think... Now that I've kind of brought you up to speed uh, as to what a honeypot is, I think it probably goes without saying that if you want to set up a honeypot, you better make sure that you have that thing locked down and ensure it doesn't have access to anything else on your network aside for maybe other honeypots if you're trying to set up like a, a networked honeypot scenario. Um, but you shouldn't give it access to anything else because the last thing you want is you to try to be doing some kind of security research, see what kind of, you know, malware you can harvest from this honeypot only to then realize that your entire network has been absolutely obliterated by ransomware. You definitely don't want that to happen. Um, so you want to make sure that if you do plan on setting up a honeypot, you have that thing locked down. And it goes, you know, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with if you want to play around with malware and see how malware works and um, what, what kind of, you know, what it does, uh, how it affects your system, what it tries to do is do some kind of analysis on it, do some reverse engineering on it. If you want to do anything like that with malware, you always need to make sure that you're doing that in a contained environment that has essentially no way for that malware to escape and infect anything else. Um, so and it, and it's basically the same thing with the honeypot, which kind of makes sense since a honeypot is essentially doing the same thing, except it's just kind of out there open live for attackers to come in and launch whatever they might want to launch. Um, so yeah, if you do plan on getting into setting up honeypots, the first thing, well, aside from permissions, which we'll get into in a little bit, you need to make sure that that thing is secured. <laughs> Make sure, um, because otherwise, congratulations, you just played yourself. So this may or may not be a surprise to some of you, um, but honeypots are actually fairly common amongst the alphabet boys, um, especially on darknet websites. Um, trying to try to expose cyber criminals. So there have been numerous instances over the past few years of various, you know, dark web marketplaces uh, essentially being stealthily taken over by various governmental agencies only for them to keep continue the operation of said site for 
whether it's a few days, a few weeks, sometimes even like a month or two, uh, just to gather as much information as they can about various people trying to access the site, only to then take down the site and sometimes even go after some of the people that were using said site. So kind of a, uh, a textbook definition if you will, of a honeypot used by the Fed boys uh, because it's a way for cybersecurity researchers or cybersecurity folks to mimic behavior of real systems, um, this being uh, dark web marketplaces, to essentially try to analyze and gain insights into what the bad people are doing. Um, so, yeah, so it is, it is fairly common um, for federal and governmental agencies uh, to use honeypots to, for things like this. Um, so I guess one thing we've kind of touched on a little bit kind of in going over the overview is kind of the goals, but going more a little more specifically into the goals of the honeypot is first and foremost – is analysis. So essentially capturing and analyzing actions that attackers are making. Um, what types of things are they trying to do? Are they trying, what kind of lateral movement are they doing? Um, what types of other exploits are they trying? Are they trying to brute force other accounts on the system? Um, you know, just trying to analyze what attackers are doing. So to allow the security professionals to kind of better understand the motives and techniques of these attackers in order to better protect against them. Um, if you can capture some logged behavior of these cyber attackers um, on this on a honeypot, for instance, you can then feed that into something like an intrusion detection system, for instance, which could then or some other kind of um, some other kind of like intrusion prevention system or firewall or um, endpoint security system, something like that to basically use that and essentially say, here, look, this is uh, malicious behavior. If you see something like this on the system, flag it. Uh, denied access, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so that is is one use uh, for the honeypots. Another use, as we kind of alluded to, is capturing malware, capturing new live malware. Now, you can go out and download any kind of malware to your heart's content. To be honest with you, there's even some GitHub repositories specifically housing malware that you can download. Now, of course, uh, the, the GitHub repository repositories are purely for educational purposes only um, but it's still it's you know, still goes without saying that you can literally download malware uh, if you want to from the internet willingly uh, but the point of the honeypot of course is to download new malware because if you have been around the cybersecurity uh, world for long enough, probably you don't even have to be around that long, one thing you'll learn pretty quickly is malware is ever-changing and ever-evolving. Cybersecurity, like a lot of things, is a never-ending arms race. The, the attackers are coming up with new exploits and new malware, and the security professionals are coming up with ways to defend against that malware. Then as soon as they come up with defenses to stop it, then the attackers come up with new malware to get around it, and the cycle continues. So in order to stay on top of that, you can set up a honeypot in order to capture some of this newest, latest, and greatest malware in order for your security researchers to do things like try to analyze it in a controlled environment, whether that's within the honeypot itself or you extract it from the honeypot and put it on some other like virtual machine or something to analyze what it's doing. Um, other things would be like reverse engineering the malware um, in order to really get into the weeds, figure out what it does the logic behind it, that kind of a thing. Um, so capturing malware is definitely something that is used for honeypots. Another one which is kind of, in my opinion, it, it really depends on your use case for it, um, but deception. And specifically, you can use honeypots to 
depending on how you place them and where you place them, you can essentially use them to mislead attackers and divert them away from your more critical infrastructure and divert them to the honeypots um, rather than to your actual infrastructure. Now, I say, at least for me, it depends on your use case for this because if your reason for setting up the honeypot in this in this scenario is as a distraction from your other infrastructure that happens to be vulnerable i kind of view that as questionable because if you have the time and energy and effort to set up a honeypot to distract them from your infrastructure that's vulnerable, I feel like you probably could have easily spent that same amount of time, energy, and potentially money even in fixing the said vulnerabilities that make your systems vulnerable rather than going around and putting up a honeypot. Now, if your reason for doing this distraction is specifically just to distract the attackers from hammering your infrastructure um, and instead going towards the honeypot, then that's a little bit different and I think a little more justifiable. Um, but again, it one thing that I alluded to earlier is the idea of permissions. So one thing you should not be doing is setting up a honeypot on your corporate infrastructure without anyone's knowledge because that is definitely a big no-no. Uh, all you kids out there, don't be doing this on your parents' Wi-Fi network or your home network um, because that would not be good. Um, now, if you own everything in the network, you own your own the place and the network, um, then I guess if you want to, you have permission to. Uh, depending on what the honeypot gets up to, though, your ISP might start asking you some questions. Um, but at least you yourself know what's going on. Um, so, yeah, you definitely want to make sure that you have permission to actually set up said honeypot if you plan on setting one up um, because depending on what kind of honeypot you set up there is a chance that there could be a, a fair bit of illegal activity going on that would be emanating from your honeypot so if this honeypot is located within your home network there is a chance that whatever illegal activity it is getting up to is using your own ip address which um might have the same alphabet boys that sometimes set up honeypots knocking at your door trying to ask you some questions. So it is definitely something you want to be cautious of if you plan on setting up a honeypot. Um, I think probably one of the best ways to go about setting one up if you do want to would be to get some cheap cloud instance through name your cloud provider of choice and use their network rather than exposing your own. Uh, now, there's ways you could get around it exposing your own. For instance, if you have... If you have either a VPN subscription or even a VPN hosted in the cloud that, or some way to hide the IP address of your actual device, um, that could be potentially one way to do it. But again, one of the main issues and cautions I would um, give you for hosting it on your own internal network is... I mean, the point of the honeypot, right, is to lure attackers in to do things. And if you're hosting it on your own network, in order to do that, regardless of what kind of precautions you make, you're going to be opening up ports on your router, which, I mean, you're just asking for issues there. Because say 
at one point you decide to disable the honeypot, get rid of it, then that's just an extra step you have to remember to make sure you plug that hole on your on your firewall uh, to make sure no more traffic can you know come through there. Um, so th- it's just, in my opinion, kind of more trouble than it's worth to host it on your own personal internal network. Um, now, if you want to set it up on your internal network just to play with um, for you yourself and not expose it to the internet, that's one thing. Um, but I think if you are serious about setting up a honeypot for security research or just for the novelty of it or whatever, I would personally recommend, you know, shelling out however much it is to, you know, get a a VPS or virtual private server somewhere in the cloud and hosting it there so you don't have to worry about exposing your own internal infrastructure at all. Um, That's at least my recommendation if you do want to set one up. Uh, but that was Honeypots. Hopefully you found it uh, – in. if you hadn't heard about Honeypots before, hope you found it informative. Um, if you have heard about Honeypots before, maybe you learned something new. Uh, maybe you just enjoyed the conversation. Uh, but, yeah, regardless, Honeypots are definitely something uh, – pretty widely used, I'd say, by security researchers uh, to analyze, you know, malware, analyze what attackers are doing, and just try to to get that one-up on attackers, Um, you know, try to to lure them in, if you will. Um, So that was Honeypots, and if you caught on... Uh, to that, uh, this this topic of honeypots. I'm not saying it did or did not, but it might have helped you with this week's trivia question, which is the application known as Snort is an example of what kind of application? And if you said intrusion detection or intrusion prevention system, you are correct. And Fun fact, I guess, I didn't even necessarily realize this initially when I was was talking during the podcast, when I got on that whole like tangent about talking about the honeypots and, um, you know, tracking and logging uh, the malicious actors activity. And then feeding that into an intrusion detection system or intrusion prevention system, I was like, huh, that pretty much just gave away the trivia question for this week. Hmm. Although I, I, as I was saying that I was keen not to point out the name Snort because obviously that would have totally given it away. Um, but potentially I kind of un, unintentionally, I guess, kind of laid that little bit of an Easter egg in there for you uh, to maybe try to probe you uh, into, into coming up with the correct answer. And then specifically right there at the end, before we even got back to the trivia question, I kind of was like, you know, speaking of which, um, so if you got this, this week's trivia question due to uh, the subtle or maybe even unsubtle hints I provided. Uh, congratulations for exploiting me. Um, you uh, you definitely hacked me on that one. Um, so congrats to you. Uh, if you already knew the answer, congrats to you as well, you cybersecurity expert. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, definitely make sure to leave it a rating and review, share it around, all that good stuff that you guys are good at. Uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. If you have any questions or topics about this episode, if you have any questions about it, if you have topics for future episodes, definitely uh, shoot me an email. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast.